So last week we ran into Balaam, a true prophet of God, but a twisted one. The story is actually pretty comical. It reminds me of Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. Did you see that? Balaam cannot tell a lie even when he wants to. What isn't funny at all, though, is that he reveals Israel's Achilles heel to King Balak of Moab. And the Moabites take full advantage of it, along with their allies, the five kings of Midian. Remember what Israel's Achilles heel is? Balaam reveals that the only way to destroy the Israelites is to draw them away from Yahweh. And the way to do that is to sexually seduce the men to draw them into worshiping other gods. So that's exactly the strategy the Moabites and the Midianites use. And it works. Numbers 25 tells us that the Israelites forsake Yahweh and yoke themselves to the idol Baal. As a result, Yahweh's anger burns against the Israelites who did this, and 24,000 people die. That was where we stopped last week. The story continues this week in Numbers 31. The Lord tells Moses to send a battalion of warriors to wreak vengeance on Midian. The five kings of Midian are defeated that day, and all the Midianite men are killed. You have to wonder if Jethro is killed at this time. Balaam is definitely killed. He has apparently tarried there in Midian, giving advice instead of going straight home. This betrayal of the Lord was his last. As is customary in warfare in this culture, the Israelite warriors loot the towns, burn the towns to the ground, and take the women and children captive. But when Moses sees what they've done, he's angry and says, why did you spare the women? They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the men to be unfaithful to the Lord. Now kill all the boys and every woman who has slept with a man, but you may allow the little girls to live. Now, I have no idea why he said to kill all the boys. There's no explanation. It doesn't say the Lord told Moses to do that. It may be something he decided on his own. It just, I don't know. It's one of those verses I have to leave sitting there because I don't understand it. But I do understand why he said to kill all the women who had participated in seducing Israel. That makes sense. This whole story serves as an exclamation point, emphasizing how vulnerable Israel is to being literally sexually seduced into idol worship, especially to the popular god Baal. So you may have noticed that the Lord did not take vengeance on the Moabites, even though King Balak was the one who hired Balaam in the first place. The Edomites are also spared even though they had blocked the Israelites' path to the promised land. The Lord has only defeated King Sion of the Amorites, King Og of Bashan in the north, and the Midianites in the south. Why treat Moab and Edom differently? Why are they spared? Well, Deuteronomy 3 and 4 explain that it's because the Edomites are Esau's descendants and the Moabites are Lot's descendants, and their land was given to them by the Lord. The Lord won't forget their misdeeds, but he's not going to take away the inheritance he promised Lot and Esau. 
It's now the end of the 40th year since God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. They've conquered all the lands east of the Jordan River that are north of Moab and Edom. The Israelites are now on the plains of Moab, which you remember aren't actually in Moab anymore. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River and take the promised land. Moses gathers them all together to remind them of everything that has happened so far. His words are what make up the entire book of Deuteronomy. If this were a football game, the book of Numbers would be the play-by-play announcer, and the book of Deuteronomy would be the color commentator. The two books have to be read together, just like we've been doing. So the tribes of Reuben and Gad see the lands the Israelites have already conquered and realize they'd be great for their farming and ranching operations. So they ask Moses if they can stay here, east of the Jordan. And Moses says, are you kidding me? You can't stay here while your brothers go to war across the Jordan. You're turning your back on God and you'll bring destruction to all of us. So the men say, Well, let us build here and leave our women and children and possessions here, but we ourselves will go to war to help our brothers. We won't come back here until each Israelite has received his inheritance. So Moses relents and gives the land east of the Jordan to Reuben, Gad, and it says to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And as the Lord instructed earlier, Moses sets up three cities, Golan, Ramoth, and Bezer, one in each region, to be cities of refuge so that anyone who accidentally kills someone can flee to the city of refuge and legally stay there until he can come safely to trial to prove his innocence. Then Moses reminds the Israelites that the Lord has told them to be sure to drive out or kill all all of the inhabitants of the promised land to destroy all their carved images and cast idols and to demolish all their worship spaces on the high places. He says, if you do not do this, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will be the Lord's enemies in the land and the Lord will do to you what he is planning to do to them. I don't know how many more ways the Lord can emphasize the importance of this. The Israelites' devotion to Yahweh hangs by a thread, as you know. Their obedience to God's commands is do or die. It will make the difference between the Lord fighting for them, or if they side with the idol worshipers, the Lord fighting against them. Moses makes it clear to the Israelites that this is not a temporary injunction either. Even after they take the promised land, they will only be able to hold it because they are the Lord's chosen people. If they turn away from the Lord, the Lord will be angry with them and scatter them among the other nations. But even if this happens, Moses reminds them, they can still turn back to the Lord, for the Lord is merciful. He will not abandon or destroy them completely or forget his covenant with their forefathers. Moses, of course, is anguished that he will not be allowed to enter the promised land himself. Instead, Joshua will lead them. As a young man, 
Joshua was already Israel's greatest warrior. Remember, he was the one who led the successful defense against the Amalekites who attacked them as they fled Egypt. Joshua was the one who stuck by Moses at the original tent of meeting before there ever even was a tabernacle. Joshua was the one who went with Moses each time he went up Mount Sinai. And Joshua was one of the 12 spies sent to spy out Canaan and was one of the only two who urged the Israelites to trust the Lord and enter the land. And now, 40 years later, Joshua is to become Israel's leader when Moses dies. Be sure to take time to read the entire book of Deuteronomy yourself. You now know the backstory and the context. It will be a joy to you when you read it because you will see the utter tenderness of the Lord. You will see the words of a God who knows exactly how weak and how warped his people are, but who loves them anyway and is doing everything he can to support them and build them up and warn them away from danger. I especially love chapters 8 and 9 in Deuteronomy. Moses says, Remember how God led you in the desert these 40 years? To humble you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember how your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell in all that time. Know in your heart that the Lord disciplines you as a loving parent disciplines a son. Moses then says something very interesting. He says, After the Lord has driven these nations out from before you, do not think he does that because of your righteousness or your integrity. No, it's not because you're better than them, but because of their own wickedness that the Lord is destroying them. This is very important to remember. The story recorded in the Bible is the story of the Israelites. We don't have the stories of these other nations to know how wicked they have been or for how many generations their perversity has endured or to what lengths the Lord has gone to woo them to himself. The Lord is not capriciously committing genocide. Remember that there is a backstory here we do not have. All it tells us here is that the Lord is eradicating evil and setting things right, not capriciously destroying the innocent. Moses continues, The Lord your God could have and already does have everything on heaven and on earth. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, which is shorthand for those in their culture who could not support themselves. It's like saying he defends the cause of the poor, of those on welfare. And God loves the immigrant residing among you, giving them food and clothing. 
and you are to love those who are immigrants, for you yourselves were immigrants in Egypt. Fear the Lord and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Only 70 people went down to Egypt originally. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then Moses says, Impress these words on your minds and hearts. Tie them as symbols on your hands and on your foreheads. Teach them to your children when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates so that your days may be many in the promised land. I love how God is into object lessons. He's trying, he's trying to make this as physical as, and, and, as, a, as a reminder as possible. It, it's kind of like that old forgetful uncle in um, It's a Wonderful Life, the one who ties ribbons around all his fingers to remember things. God's saying, do whatever it takes to remember all these things. And if you do these things, Moses said, the Lord will drive these nations out from in front of you. I am setting before you today a choice, a choice between being blessed and being cursed. Choose wisely. And when you enter the promised land, go to Shechem, to the two mountains there at the crossroads. Now you guys in class are going to remember that Shechem has always represented a place of choosing to the Israelites. Moses continues, half of you climb Mount Gerasim and proclaim the blessings the Lord is offering you. And half of you climb Mount Ebal and shout the curses that will befall you if you turn away from your God. Destroy completely all the places of idol worship on all the hills and under all the spreading trees. The Lord your God will appoint one place and one place only for his name to dwell. It is to that place alone you must bring your offerings. I want you to remember this command um, about having just one place for God to dwell. That becomes super important later on, as you'll see. Moses says, remember to celebrate all the feasts and sacrifices. Remember to bring your first fruits to the Lord and to tie the tenth of all that your fields produce every year. Remember that every three years, your tithe is to be given to the Levites for their sustenance. And don't forget that at the end of every seven years, all slaves are to be freed and all debts are to be forgiven. So there will not be any poor among you. Be generous always. Do not pervert justice nor accept bribes. And if you decide you must have a king, be sure to appoint the man of God's own choosing. The king must be humble, not considering himself better than his brothers, not acquiring great wealth for himself, nor taking many wives. He's to read the law of the Lord every day of his life, so he will learn to revere the Lord and follow all his commands. Do not allow anyone to sacrifice their children or to practice divination, sorcery, reading of omens, witchcraft, casting of spells, or calling forth the dead. 
These are the kinds of things the other nations have been doing. The Lord detests these things. He, he, he says, do not listen to the prophets of the other nations, for they are false and do not speak for God. Then the Lord says something in Deuteronomy 18 that has reverberated across the ages ever since. The Lord says, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among the Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth. Well, the Israelites have been looking for this prophet like Moses ever since. This is one of the earliest messianic prophecies. The Jews were still looking for this prophet like Moses at the time of Jesus. And we'll run into this prophecy in the mouths of the New Testament writers later on. The Lord then gives the Israelites rules for engaging in warfare. Do not be afraid, even if the enemy is far stronger than you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest must bless you and remind you that the Lord your God is with you. Then the officers are to send home anyone who has just built a new home and has not yet blessed it, anyone who has planted a vineyard and not yet enjoyed it, anyone who is engaged but has not yet married, anyone who is newlywed and has not been married a full year, and anyone who is afraid or faint-hearted. The Lord also makes a differentiation between cities that are in the promised land itself and cities that are farther away. First, the rules for cities far away from where the Israelites will be living. When you approach the city to attack it, first offer the city peace as your slaves rather than total destruction. Only attack if they refuse. Once you have taken the city, you must put all the men to the sword, but you may keep the women, children, and livestock and everything else in the city. However, if the city is in the promised land itself, you must utterly destroy every living thing. Otherwise, they will teach you to worship other gods. And remember the Amalekites who attacked you when you were fleeing from Egypt. Be sure to blot them out completely. Don't forget to do this. If you lay siege to a city, use common sense. Be sure to spare the fruit-bearing trees and vegetation. You'll need them later on. So these are rational and far less barbaric rules of warfare than are normal at this time. Just like in the rest of the law, the Lord is moving the Israelites in a more just direction. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is another very famous chapter. It lists all the amazing blessings the Lord is giving the Israelites if they will only accept them, and then lists the pretty awful alternatives should they decide to follow other gods. The bad things are pretty specific, things like being invaded by foreigners and being under such terrible siege that the Israelites will eat their own children. It's a pretty gruesome description of death, destruction, and captivity. And in somewhat of a spoiler alert, we scholars believe that the reason um, these bad things are so specific is because they are recounting the things that actually did happen to them um, many, many hundreds of years later. 
after they turned from the Lord. Uh, the, the, the whole, all five of these books, um, w- we believe, were compiled uh, many, many hundreds of years later than the events that are taking place. They occurred after all this had actually occurred, obviously. And so it got written down very specifically in, in detail of what actually did happen. Moses then calls the people to renew their covenant with the Lord that very day. He says, you yourselves have seen the great wonders the Lord has done. You see these wonders every day. You know that the Lord God is real, present, and is your God. Make sure there is no one among you who doubts the Lord your God. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. And someday in the distant future, he tells them, after all these blessings, and yes, all these curses happen to you when you choose wrongly, on the day when you finally return to the Lord, the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and will gather you from all the nations where you are scattered. The Lord will bring you back here and will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Moses says, this is not rocket science. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to follow God. You don't need the advice of an expert. You don't have to go far away to find a wise man with the answer. No, the word, the thing I'm talking about is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. I call earth and heaven as witnesses to the choice I have set before you today. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Hear his voice and hold tightly to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses says, I am 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. Joshua will cross over the Jordan with you. And Moses calls Joshua up to him and says, Be strong and have courage, for you must go with these people into the land the Lord has promised. You must divide the land among their tribes as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And Moses writes down all these words and gives them to the priests and says, Every seven years, assemble the people and read them all these words during the Feast of Tabernacles, that big community camp out. Then the Lord calls Moses and Joshua to the front of the tent of meeting. And there, from the pillar of cloud, the Lord says to Moses, The time has come for you to rest with your forefathers. Know that these people will forsake me. Very soon they will prostitute themselves to foreign gods in the land they're entering. And on that day, I will destroy them. I will hide my face from them. So write down this song and teach it to them. The song itself will be a witness against them, evidence that they were warned, so they have no excuse. 
The Song of Moses is recorded in Deuteronomy 32. It's a song of praise to God, a song of God's utter faithfulness and justice. And it's a song of the foolishness and perversity of the people. The song tells how the Lord sought them out and found them in their suffering. It reminds them that they alone were chosen by God, rescued to be his own portion, his companions, his inheritance. And it tells how the Lord shielded and cared for them as the apple of his eye, as an eagle hovers over its young, spreading its wings to protect them. The song tells how the Lord fed them and made their flocks abundant, how they had milk and honey, and yet, even in this safety and abundance, they kicked at God and rejected him. They deserted the Father God who begat them. They forgot the Mother God who gave birth to them and nurtured them. The song laments that they are a nation with no sense and no discernment. There is no wisdom among them. And so they will learn what it is like when the Lord hides his face and does not protect nor help. They will be buried in calamities, pestilence, and plague. Their children will die by the sword. But even still, the Lord will have compassion on them when they have reached the end of their own strength. Where are your gods, he will say. Let your idols rise up and help you. See, now you know there is no other God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Rejoice, for I will avenge the blood of my servants. I will take vengeance on my enemies and will make atonement for this land and this people. After he teaches them the song, Moses blesses all the tribes. Well, at least he blesses 11 of them. The blessing is in Deuteronomy 33, and the tribe of Simeon is skipped. There's no immediate explanation in the text, but perhaps the explanation can be found back in Jacob's blessings of the tribes in Genesis 49. Remember that? Back then, Jacob was furious with Simeon and Levi for their treachery at Shechem after Dina's rape. And on his deathbed, he said, Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And sure enough, we already know that Levites will not inherit any land, not as a punishment as, God, as Jacob intended but because the Lord has chosen them as his portion to represent the firstborn of Israel before him. Jacob wanted Simeon and Levi scattered among Israel. The Lord has already found a way to honor Jacob's blessing and still redeem Levi's inheritance. Will he find a way to redeem Simeon too, even though their blessing has been withheld by both Jacob and Moses? I know that by now you know the answer. Surely it is yes. Surely the Lord will redeem the inheritance of the tribe of Simeon. We have to skip forward a little bit to Joshua 19. There we find that when the promised land is divided between the tribes, Simeon is not given its own land. Instead, 
the tribe of Simeon receives land within the borders of the tribe of Judah. Thus, the blessing of Jacob is fulfilled. They are indeed scattered, but they are not punished. And neither is Judah punished, for the same passage tells us that Judah has more land than it needs. So what is given to Simeon is taken from the abundance of Judah. This is how God redeems. This is how God blesses, even when we withhold blessings from others in our rage. God can redeem even our own hatefulness. I love how God is always at work in the background, setting things right. When God judges, he sets things back the way they were meant to be. And knowing how hard this is all going to be, Moses lays his hands on Joshua and prays for him. Then Moses climbs Mount Nebo and looks across the Jordan towards Jericho. The Lord shows him the whole land farther than the eye can see, from the south where he's standing to Dan in the north and all the land west to the Mediterranean. This, the Lord says, is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there on Mount Nebo, Moses dies. And God himself buries him. To this day, no one knows exactly where his grave is. And the Israelites mourn Moses for 30 days. And Joshua, son of Nun, is filled with the spirit of wisdom that came upon him when Moses laid his hands on him. And so the Israelites listen to Joshua and follow him. Since then, the book of Deuteronomy says, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these miraculous signs and wonders. No one, it says, has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And thus ends the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The word Torah does not mean law, as you may have been led to believe. The word Torah, the name of the five books we've covered, means the teaching. This is a set of stories intended to teach us who God is and who we are as God's people. And that's what I want to talk about in the breakout sessions. During the breakout session, um, and we'll do it together since there's so few of us, um, the, the, so be sure and turn your mics and your videos back on so we can talk to each other. Um, it's, it's, what I wanted to talk about in the breakout session was that the whole point of these ancients writing this down, collecting all these stories and editing all these passages to try to make them fit and make sense and make a great big saga out of them was because it's important. <laughs> it's important. And um, what I wanted to talk about today was as you reflect on the five books we've studied. If you were an Israelite, had had no preconception of who God was to begin with, um, 
Or maybe if you came into it like they did, thinking of God like they thought of idols, you maybe you came into this, this study with a lot of baggage about who God is and what God's like. What would you have picked out from these five books to remember about God? What would you want to tell your kids? What would you want to tell someone who, who has all this baggage about God? How would you compare and contrast what, what you might have thought God was like to what you see of God in these stories? Of course, I missed a good deal again today. But when I was reading the chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the things that stood out to me was these are the laws for you. I'm not telling you to go out and judge others by these things. I'm telling you to live this way and you will be blessed. And if you do not live this way, there will be a curse upon you. But it didn't say go out and judge other people by this here. And that's what I felt was, you know, if I don't murder someone, I live a better life. If I don't steal, I live a better life. These are all things that benefit me. And I'm blessed because I try to adhere to this set of commandments. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. But it's not my place to throw rocks at someone who has done something. They will be cursed. God will take care of that. And I love God's version of a curse. You know, it's like God's version of a curse is, all right, you don't want me? I'll leave. (laughs) And you can do it your way. And you can do it the way of all these other people. And natural consequences will take their course. You know, you will fall into the pit of your own making. And when you finally decide that might not have been a good idea, I will be there for you. I will be there. And I will take all the bad that has happened to you and redeem it. I think that's what Marlene always talks about, the parenting with love and logic. Uh, it goes very well with this um, that, yeah, I mean, you, there are consequences and you give people choices and they can either choose or not. Um, so this is very much the same thing. Like with our kids, they know the rules, you know, that we establish a society, whatever, But then at some point, I mean, your love doesn't go away. You go, okay, you do it your way. I will always be here. I will always love you. will always take you back or, you know, whatever. But it's like you've got to, it's that balance of, okay, let them proceed. Make the choices, yeah. 
Well, and I know that, you know, I've always heard through the years, God is love, God is love. But I don't know that I ever got the extent, really, of that uh, until you walked us through, Gail, how he is always, you know, 100% consistent. He is wooing us. He wants us. But he loves us enough to let us make our mistakes. But And it's not he who walks away. It's us. And like everyone has said, when we are ready to come back, he is there. And he is not there with judgment. He is there with love. And I guess I just never really, I just never really got the extent of that, how consistent that is throughout the Bible. So that, that's what it, um, that's what I think I would want to teach my children is that, and I, and I mean, I have, but not necessarily in those words, but that, you know, he's always there. Lumar, you have no he's idea. Always there. You can always turn to him. He's always faithful. Exactly. To you have no idea, Lumar, how much that comment means to me coming from you. Um, you're somebody that I know knows the Lord and has taught this part of the Bible yourself many times to many people. Right. You know? Right. And for you to say, it actually brings tears to my eyes, for you to say that you saw God in a deeper way, in a in a more immediate and loving, and just somehow there was just a connection that just, oh, all of it fell together. All those pieces yes. came together yes. in a consistent way that wasn't there before. That's why I do this. <laughs> you know, that means the Holy Spirit is speaking in these lessons. That it's, that it's not me and my logic. It's that, that the door is opening in the, the scripture for you to hear that, you know, and this is such a bedrock well and i've known for many years that god uses you in a powerful way at least in my life i think for i sure. think god uses all of us if we're willing to just look foolish if we're willing to make a mistake if we're built willing to you know pick up the phone when it makes no sense you know those kinds of things yeah other oh, ideas this is the first time, Gail, that I have learned that I can rest on my own understanding instead of leaning on other people to tell me what the Bible says. This is the first time I've had that given to me. Everything else I've ever done Bible study-wise, it was always, I was told what the Bible said, and, you know, that's the way it is. You don't question it. And this is the first time I've been allowed to question what I'd previously been taught or what I thought. And that sometimes when I question something I thought, it makes sense because you gave us those backpack things. Yeah. yeah. There, is, there is great safety in understanding what Lamar was saying, that God is there. And that opens the door to be able to ask all kinds of questions about this stuff, you know, and it, and it protects you from, from being, you know, 
wrapped up in somebody else's rules. I don't think God lets himself be wrapped up in rules. I think God's always about the people first and about the relationship first, about the relationship he wants with us. You've seen all the way through this, these five books. He doesn't, he doesn't get bent out of shape over sex. He doesn't get bent out of shape over violence. He doesn't get bent out of shape over much of anything except being rejected by the people he loves. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I think that we, um, react very strongly to being rejected by the people we love because we're made like God is. So, hi, Julia. Well, so I got it on my phone, but I couldn't figure out how to unclick it. And then it came up on my computer, but it wouldn't work on my phone earlier. So thanks for letting me in. So I caught up on the last few lessons um, to this point. Um, and I just wanted to share when you said, what do you take away from the first five books? I was, I grew up in a pretty strict Lutheran church. And for me, this is kind of the fire and brimstone stuff. And what I have had a paradigm shift within my last 10 years has been your sins are forgiven. God loves you. So it's a hard shift for me to kind of look back at this because I, I struggle with all of the go kill all these people. I struggle with that. And when we said something about the, you know, I'll always be here. That's the lesson, the parable of the prodigal son that, you know, when you come out will be received, but there weren't really any consequences in the parable son. I mean, or the, I'm sorry, the prodigal son, it was open arms receive. And, and that's the new paradigm shift that I'm trying to set myself on. Um, so it's funny because I, I spent my first 40 years really, ex- boom, th- those books were it. And now it's kind of, I don't know, Gail, if I'm making sense, a juxtaposition of what I'm learning hardcore about what Jesus truly brought us. Yeah. I, I think that's a wonderful place to be. It's kind of like up to a certain point in your life, you're like a ship stuck in ice. And then the ice starts to break up. And it doesn't just float off like a balloon. It's a process. And gradually, you kind of find your way through. And, as, and it's like spring coming to Narnia, you know? It's like the... Right. the it's like it starts to thaw and then it gathers momentum and then the life begins to flow and it's just an amazing thing. And I think it's a wonderful journey. I didn't ask a lot of questions as a kid. I didn't ask a lot of questions as an adult. It just was. And I won't lie. I had a few periods of time where my questions were, uh, you know, on faith, but I mean, the faith has always been there. I've told you that I think I was called to him because I chose church at five years old, but um, I do believe that questions are really good. And I don't believe we're supposed to know all the answers. I think that's supposed to be the journey. Yes. I think there is a lot of mystery supposed to be there um, in our relationship with God. I, there's a Facebook meme going around um, that I've seen several times that says, that that um, when 
you realize that God hates all the same people you do, then you can be sure you've made God in your own image. You know, and, and so if there's no mystery, if God is not doing unexpected and scary things <laughs> with me, then I might have put God in a box. If I listen to these lessons five years from now and don't cringe and think, oh man, I would never say that now. Right. Then I might have put God in a box. But isn't what we just heard that God said, go annihilate these men? Yes. Yes. But God also said that he was not doing it because the Israelites were better. He said, true. It's not because you're any better than them. You're not more holy. You're not more righteous. You don't have a better relationship with me. It's because of their wickedness and iniquity. And I'm not going to, it's like a mom talking to the kids when the kid says, well, you're not punishing Susie. And mom says, I'm not talking to you about what Susie did or did not do. This is about you and me. Yeah. And I think that's what I was speaking to about when I was mentioning earlier, these are laws for us to live by. It's not for us to take it into our own hands to go out and choose who should be punished or annihilated or they will deal with their natural consequences that will come to them. Um, People or, or, communities or whatnot that are not walking in faith that will have its own repercussion so that's not upon us to take the matter into our hands what we need to do is fix our hearts right and focus on living our best life with god and if we all do that Wow, we'd be in utopia. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that we find it much easier to imagine all the bad things happening than we do to imagine all the good things happening. That is so true, Gail. Um, I, I come from a background of, of a lot of negativity in life. And years ago, my husband would always listen to me do the day dump at the end of the day and he would you know see you know where i was trying to be the victim or trying to have my villain or whatever and he'd just listen he tried to fix it at first but as a man does but then he realized (laughs) it's the day dump and he would say to me most people are just going about their lives wanting to have a nice day and you know it didn't happened for me overnight but at some point I realized most people are going about their lives wanting to have a nice day they're not wanting to ruin your life they just are there and what you choose to see in people is from inside yourself does that make sense Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I figured that out. 
because before that I was looking for the negativity in things. And yeah. it's quite a burden off of my shoulders to realize when something bad happens, maybe it wasn't because of X, Y, or Z, but to step out of that box and look at it from a different perspective. Because there's more than one situation going on usually. And it's not always through my lenses. Do you think it's possible that this text is where things have been misinterpreted and so many denominations or churches feel that they're saved and others are condemned? Oh, heavens, yes. That's it's from this text. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, where, and, I, and where we got go and kill in his name? Yes. I think that this just is so rarely studied in its entirety in the way it was intended to be studied and so rarely studied trying to strip off our own cultural, you know, lenses as Julia was talking about. It's, I think it's mistaught like a lot, <laughs> you know, and I think it has borne very bad fruit. And I think the fact that we throw out whole chunks of it because, oh, it doesn't apply to us anymore, you know, and then we pick these other parts and carry them forward. And, and I think it's sad. I think there's a huge blessing here that people miss because it takes a lot of effort. I mean, we've been doing these first five books has taken us basically six months. You know, that's a big commitment, you know? Um, and you guys have been amazing going through this and sticking with it. And, and um, it's, it's not, you know, doing, doing the laws is maybe not the most exciting part of the Bible. I'd, I'd like it's to. Important. It is. I, I'd like to thank you for um, bringing up the story of the prodigal son, because it never occurred to me until right now that Jesus was actually talking about the Old Testament when he was talking about the prodigal son. I thought he was coming up with a completely new idea, and it turns out that he wasn't. He was just explaining what all of this meant. And, you know, so if God is like the father and the prodigal son, all those tribes and whatever that kept on turning away from God and they came back and God is just so happy to have them back and the consequences that they suffered were very much like the consequences that the prodigal son had suffered when he had gone away. He wasn't loved. He had to eat scraps uh, for food. He, the food he ate was worse than what the pigs ate. He had to live with pigs. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it was so much that he brought himself to such a low level. I'm sure it was just a relief to be welcomed back and, and, and I don't see why he needed to be, um, I don't know, I want to say uh, punished any more than all the other crap that he had already gone through. 
that he willingly brought upon himself because he chose to leave and do all those things that God told him not to do. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. I, yeah, I've had an epiphany. (laughs) It's a a big thing. Now talk to me about the older son. Well, but I was going to say, yeah, the, the young, the, the prodigal son suffered the consequences during the time he was gone. But as far as lifelong consequences, I mean, because he was welcomed back. But in the words that we just talked about with Moses to go and kill, who's to come back in that period? Well, the, the, the thing to remember is to pull back the focus. That you're not, none of this, none of this whole entire five, five books is looking at an individual life. It's looking at it from a national point of view. This, this is a story of nations, currents of nations. So um, the, the, when God says, you know, I will have compassion on you, he's not talking about that individual who, you know, sure. died after 40 it's years. Of yes. I, I guess I'm just still stuck on that go kill people. So the older son. The older son is going to have, um, as he did, a, a true test of faith because his ego and his jealousy threw a fit with his father. Well, and it's, it seems to me to be a measure of how he perceived his own worth and holiness. Yes. He, he was selfless. He was, I think when... when- I think when God says to go out and destroy this group of people, God, because he doesn't live in that exact moment, he lives in all moments, he knows that those people are going to continue down this path of run. And maybe he's saying, you know, destroy this group of people because their life's going to get a lot worse. And maybe I can save them, use you as my instrument to save them from being their lives being a lot worse. We don't know what God sees is how I look at it. I don't think God just picks a group of people and says, um, in the old Testament or even nowadays, go kill this whole group of people because, you know, they're, they're sinning and stuff like that. He doesn't, he's the one that says what's going on. It's not the Israelites that are judging. And I think that's the most important thing is God judges, not the people. I, th- I also think, think it's important. Is right. um, sorry if I interrupt. Um, what I keep thinking is this is the story of a birth of a nation. And it's not, <laughs> and it's at God's direction as to how he's fulfilling these prophecies and promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then also tying it to the New Testament, Christ grew up with these stories because he was Jewish. He knew these things. And so he would revert back to these things and clarify for us as to how this applies to our lives now. He he didn't necessarily say, you're going to go out and... actually. I don't know my Bible all that well, but I don't remember Christ ever saying, go out and annihilate a nation. 
He didn't. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Gail. He didn't even say go out and annihilate one single person. Exactly. And so I think he reached back to the teachings that the rabbis taught him in his faith growing up and with his extraordinary <clears throat> knowledge and wisdom from being Christ was able to elaborate upon that and give us new direction. And I also think it's helpful to remember um, now that, and now that you know, these five books that all of these stories are told within the cultural context of the time, which was barbaric, which was, this is how warfare is done. You annihilate everybody. You kill all the men, you rape all the women, you take all the kids, you know, God, never in all the law just snapped his fingers and wiped all that that part out he went with people where they were so if the lord you'll find statements throughout the old testament where the lord says i'm going to drive these people out from in front of you that could have been a very peaceful process but if they refuse to go i'm still giving you this land you know and if they choose to stay and fight I'm fighting on your side. Another thing I thought about that was interesting in the, the amount of the book that I was able to read, and, and this is kind of weird, but when he talked about somewhere, I don't know where exactly it was, but that while they were wandering, that their feet did not swell. And that when they were cursed, their feet would swell. And I think, Oh no, my feet swell. <laughs> I just thought, wow, he even cared about their feet swelling. And he took care of that along with the food, along with the manna and the water and the sandals and the clothes. And their feet didn't swell. And I just thought he took care of everything. And that's really the point that is the point of all these stories that god cares that god is out there just smoothing the way all around you before you behind you he's fixing all the hurts that i've caused intentionally and unintentionally you know it's it's god is out there setting things right and he's setting things right for me and that does not mean that life will be easy. That does not mean that there will not be hardship. But I find that it means that God's presence adjusts to what, what is happening in my life. So for example, in Two or three weeks ago, my family experienced a, a suicide that was devastating. And the day before yesterday, my husband received a terminal diagnosis. The only question is how quickly is it going to be five to 10 years or the more likely, the doctor thinks, two to four years. And the, the diagnosis 
was not unexpected. Some of the people in class may remember a Sunday school class I was in once where I, um, back at the end of 2016, where I, I relayed to the class, the Lord had told me, had impressed on my heart that we were entering the last 10 years of my husband's life. And he wasn't ill or anything at that point. And within three weeks, we were in the hospital. And, um, and it's been rocky ever since, but not immediately life-threatening. Um, so when, these, when they found this new stuff, this new issue with his lungs um, a few months ago and began doing running tests, I, I knew what to expect. I knew the direction this was moving because the Lord had been kind enough to tell me, you know, um, and that allowed me to do a lot of the worrying and the grieving and the, you know, I'm a kind of person I like to, I look ahead. I'm a planner in, down to my DNA, you know, and, and God knows that about me. And, and so God gave me the grace of that time to, to cry and to fight and to worry about it. And, um, and when we got the diagnosis the day before yesterday, it was like all of a sudden, God picked me up and put me in a silo with only me and him. And all that other froth that I had been frothing up to that point went away. And the feeling of God being wholly present, fully and completely present, and of being completely protected was a feeling I recognized from times in my past life that frankly have been worse than this. Because the times in my past life that this has happened have involved serious rejection by people who should love me. And this time, don't get me wrong, I will be devastated. This will not be easy. This is not a pretty death that we're talking about. Um, and it's, it's going to be rough. But, but this time, there's no rejection involved. My husband and I have loved each other well all these years. And I know God. And I trust God. I know that he works all these things for good. And I know that our bodies are like our clothes. We take them off. They wear out. I know that. But I know that who we are is part of God. We are not just made in his image. We are part of God. We are part of the love. Our heartbeat is his heartbeat. And my husband, when he's no longer here where I can touch him, it will be no different than him not being here in the room with me right now. He's puttering around in the kitchen. I think he's mopping the floor, bless his heart. 
But um, that it's no different than that. Death is no different than that because I know how God intended us to be. I know God goes to great lengths, whatever lengths, everything it takes to draw us to him. And the us he's drawing to him is not our bodies. And that, Joe, to some extent, is why I don't get all fretted about what happens to the bodies here on earth? What happens if somebody dies young? What happens if somebody dies old? What if happens if somebody dies innocent? What happens if somebody dies because they're wicked? I just, none of that is what matters. What matters is that our soul belongs to God. And I know I'm here in my silo with God and I know God is holding me. And my husband is outside of that silo between me and God. And I know that God is holding my husband just as well. This is what I would want to communicate to my children, to you guys, to anybody who listens to this video. This is who God is. Thank you, Gail. And we love you. Thank you. I love you too. We won't know anything more until March. They'll redo the test to see how fast it might be progressing. So it's, it's called pulmonary fibrosis, and it's where the, um, the tissue between the air sacs in your lungs turns to scar and gradually basically your lungs calcify and all that that might entail as you can imagine so the the kind the doctor suspects he has is runs its course in two to four years for most people but it's possible that it will be different um, in his case it's just not the important part That's all I got today. Well, let me know if there's something I can do to help in like bring you a meal so you guys can just have a restful evening. Like if you've had a stressful day, something I, like that. I will. I absolutely will. And, you know, we're years from that point either way it goes. So just prayers and, and be sure to pray for Marlene as she loses her mother now. You know, her mother is dying now, um, actively dying. Um, so um, it is a wonderful thing to be bound together in love with you guys. Yes. It's, it's a, a wonderful thing to know that even when your loved one leaves, that you still have these hands, this community holding you. How but, is he? Huh? He's he's he? fine. He's more concerned about me than he is about him. That's kind of who he is. He's a very sweet person. Um, and so he, um, we've had sometimes, we, you know, we kind of went through the hard part 
emotionally before this because the doctor had showed us the x-rays, you know, a month ago. And it was kind of clear what was going on. So he had a, he's had a couple of quiet nights. Um, but he's not a warrior. He's not, he's not a warrior. I think we will be fine. I'm more worried about being a crap nurse. Well, you certainly are filled with a lot of grace. <laughs> I think he's worried about me being a crap nurse. <laughs> I cannot imagine you being a crap nurse. Gail. Oh, I am. I am no, sorry. you all just see this one little piece of me. I have this whole <laughs> impatient side, and and I am. <laughs> I would never pick me for a nurse. <laughs> I would pick him for a nurse. He's wonderful. But My husband has sick kits that he keeps, like chicken soup and chicken and stars and crackers and his little medicine, and he keeps it in a box. And when he gets sick, he just crawls in bed and wants nothing to do with any of us. So I'm okay, nurse, because <laughs> I ignore him. But he just lives in his, his sick box. You know, and every now and again, you got to throw the soup out because it expired and we never used it. And we got to get more soup for the sick box and the crackers. And I had never heard of that until I married him. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> here, okay. here, honey, here's a can opener. <laughs> so, Gail, this is my gift to you then. Perhaps my gift to you is that I am a pretty good nurse. And on the days when you can't, you call me. Oh, I will. I will call Julia for food and you for nursing and I, you know, and, and all the rest of you for prayer <laughs> and life. Love. Yeah, you got some prayer from me too. Yeah, that sounds good. I love you guys. Have a wonderful and week. We love from Wisconsin. Thanks, Ron. Bye. 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 Bye.